Sirius XM Sports Podcasts presents Mad Dog's Daily Bite with Christopher Russo. And good afternoon, everybody! Well, as aforementioned, if we can't uh, take our buddies, Luke Torrey and uh, Steve Torrey, and uh, obviously Montag blew me off at the Madden Cruiser, if we can't take our buddies on a library tour to see the presidential libraries around the country ending at San Clemente with Nixon, what we'll do is we'll bring the presidential tour to you on radio. Candace Millard's written many a great book. Her new one is The uh, River of the Gods, which is about the finding the source of the Nile. She's done a great job at that. She's written books about Teddy Roosevelt's Nile or uh, South American Amazon tour, which basically killed him after World War One. Destiny Republic is a wonderful book from 10 years ago about James Garfield. Yes, the president who got shot, and we're going to go through all the details, and then later died with incredibly horrendous Dr. Care. And Candace, who's in Kansas City, says hello. Candace, nice to talk to you. First time you've been on a sports talk show, I guarantee you that. Nice to have you aboard. <laughs> How are you today, okay? Hi, great. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited about it. Great to have you with us. Let's first do Garfield. Boy, this is a terrible life lost. I just get a yeah. funny feeling in the three months that you got to know him in a little bit with your book and just his history as a union general and everything else. He would have been a great president. I, I really believe this guy would have been a great president. He was cut short basically six weeks in. But from a presidential standpoint, he had all the marks checked. He would have been a very good one, I think, in American history. How about that? I completely agree. He was absolutely brilliant. You know, he and he he was he was very iconically American. So he was our last president born in a log cabin. He didn't have shoes until he was four years old. His daughter, his father died when he was two. He sent himself to college. He was a, a janitor and a carpenter to pay for his first year of college. But he was so brilliant that they made him a professor of literature mathematics and ancient languages when he was just a sophomore in college. When he was in Congress, he wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem. He was just off the charts brilliant. But to me, what was more important about him was he was incredibly decent. He was just a good, kind human being. He hid a runaway slave. He was instrumental in bringing about black suffrage. He was a hero for the Union Army during the Civil War. And he and he didn't want to be president. It was he was sort of thrust into this into this position, and so he became what I think no other president before or after has become somebody who didn't owe anyone anything and could sort of work through his own values and ideals. Uh, how come from a, uh, you, from a Civil War standpoint, we know a lot of the generals on both sides, you know, obviously Grant becomes a president. We all know about Sherman going through Atlanta, Robert E. Lee. We know all the generals mm -hmm. and we don't know anything about Garfield being a general and he was a good one. How come that's sort of been under the radar in his whole life? Why, why, is, the, why is that the case? I think that's the story of his whole life. I think it's because he was president for such a short time. You know, he was shot just a few months into his first and only term as president. At the time, he was very, very well known, even before he ran for president. As I said, he was absolutely a hero um, during the Civil War and was remembered after it as somebody everyone admired. And I think what really what was interesting about him is he brought this divided country together for the first time since Lincoln's assassination 16 years earlier. 
Hey, good thought. We'll get to that. Uh, the everybody was in shock and unbelievably upset when he was uh, when, when he was shot. And there's a long story to that that we will get to. And we should spend a minute or two on the person who did it. Number one, he somehow was rescued from a collision with steamships in the <laughs> Long Island Sound, which a lot of mm-hmm. people were killed in. So that's unfortunate that he wasn't one of the <laughs> victims in that. Uh, but this is a guy, and you can pronounce his last name for me, who had a very weird childhood, lived on communes, and was a nutcase, and somehow, some way, got into his head that he was going to become an ambassador to France or England, and the way to do that was to run into the Secretary of State Blaine from Maine or knock on the White House and ask Garfield for the job. Give us a little rundown on his would-be assassin. Let me hear thoughts there. Right. This was Charles Guiteau. And as you say, he was really Garfield's opposite in every way. So he tried many, many things, and he failed at many things. He tried being a lawyer. He lived in a free love commune where the the women there nicknamed him Charles Get Out, so he wasn't successful there. He had tried being a bill collector. All of these things had failed and failed. But and he his his sister, who had basically raised him, understood that he was mentally ill. He was extremely delusional. Um, as you say, he was very excited about the spoil system. He thought that all I have to do is be the first person to ask for a job, and then I can get it. So I should be able to ask the president to be made ambassador to France and I should be able to get that job. So he was just incredibly delusional. But he lived during a time when people could easily disappear. So he he rode trains all over the country and he would just jump off. He never paid for a ticket. He moved from boarding house to boarding house, leaving just before the rent was due. And every time his sister tried to get him help and had tried to have him put into an asylum, he would just disappear. And so by the time Garfield is surprisingly elected, he becomes obsessed with him and starts, as you say, starts to really stalk him, thinking that he's owed this incredible position. Um, there's no one to to protect the president of the United States from this obviously mentally ill person. All right, that's uh, person number two. Uh, Protagonist number three is Alexander Graham Bell, who you spent a lot of time on here in this book. Obviously, he invented the telephone. He was an incredible scientist, close to inventing inventing the X-ray, which could have saved Garfield's life. Very good with, uh, with people who were disadvantaged and wanted to take care of them. This is a fascinating, who went to Chicago in 1880, whatever year it was, with the exposition and had all these inventions. He was right on the cusp of becoming very famous at the time of Garfield's presidency. And we all know who he is now, Alexander Graham Bell. Give the folks a little rundown on him because he's a fascinating creature, a fascinating person in this book. Go ahead. He is. So I actually started the book with an interest in Alexander Graham Bell. I was just doing some broad research and I stumbled upon the story of him inventing something called the induction balance to try to save Garfield's life after Garfield was shot. And this just stunned me. First of all, I had never heard the story. And secondly, I thought, why would Bell do that? As you said, he was very young. So he had invented the telephone just five years earlier. 
It had given him a little money and it had given him a lot of fame. And he had so many ideas for inventions that he wanted to create. And he finally had the opportunity to do that. And when Garfield was shot, he dropped everything he was doing. He turned his life upside down. He worked night and day to invent this induction balance, which was the first medical, the first metal detector. And this is, so this is 16 years before the invention of the uh, medical X-ray. So there was no way to tell where the bullet was in Garfield, but Bell believed in science and he believed that he could do better than these doctors who were simply inserting unsterilized fingers and instruments into these patients. He thought science can do better than that and so he worked constantly to try to create out of whole cloth while the country, while the world is watching, the president is dying. He's trying to create this this invention um, to try to save the, the president's life. Wow. So we'll get back to how that worked out in a little bit. Let's go back to Garfield here with Candace Millard, Destiny of the Republic, book from 10 years ago. Wonderful author. Uh, an excellent book, forthcoming River of the Gods. When does that come out, Candace? Has that already been out? When does that come out? Yeah, it's been out. The um, paperback was just released. Oh, paperback was just released. So you wrote that book yeah. uh, a while ago. All right. Garfield goes, the convention's in Chicago. Then nobody thinks he's going to win. Republican convention. Nobody mm-hmm. thinks he's going to win. He kind of, he's a longtime congressman. He kind of goes as a standby guy. And somehow, some way, after this tremendous battle between Ulysses Grant and all these other candidates who were not going to win, he became a compromised candidate that took for days to figure that out. Explain the story. Go ahead. So he was from Ohio, as was John Sherman, who was William Tecumseh Sherman's younger brother, and he had been Secretary of the Treasury under Hayes. And Sherman wants the Republican nomination for president. But he's worried about Garfield because Garfield is very charismatic. As I said, he's brilliant. He's also this incredibly um, powerful speaker. And so Sherman thinks, okay, the best way to keep Garfield from being a danger is to ask him to give my nominating address. So Garfield goes to the um, Republican convention. As you say, it's in Chicago. There are like 15,000 men there to um, to choose the next um, Republican candidate for president. As you said, um, Grant was one, you know, Ulysses S. Grant. Everybody assumed that he would get the nomination, even though his, um, his former administration had some corruption with it. But he was still obviously beloved and famous. Um, and then this guy, James Blaine, was also running the Magnetic Man from Maine. And Garfield gets up to give Sherman's nominating address. And it's this crazy, crazy crowd. And, they, and this guy named Roscoe Conkling just gave the address for Grant. And everybody's still whooping and hollering. And Garfield gets up. And this speech was largely extemporaneous. And he begins speaking. And his speech was so powerful and so eloquent and moving that the entire audience slowly quiets until you can just hear his voice and he's speaking and at one point he says my friends i ask you what do we want and someone in the crowd shouts we want garfield and everybody goes crazy and he's trying to get them to quiet down so he can finish his speech and then he sits down and they start to take the ballots and as you say, they're going along and nobody's getting enough enough ballots to win. And then suddenly someone gives one of their ballots for Garfield and he stands up and he objects. He's like, I'm not a candidate. I don't want to be. 
but he shouted down, there's nothing he can do. And slowly this sort of trickle becomes a stream, becomes a river, becomes this torrent of votes for James Garfield, who again, wasn't even a candidate. And the next thing he knows, he finds himself the Republican nominee for president of the United States. And it's funny, too, in those days, everybody thought it was bad course to go out there and campaign. Mm-hmm. So the president never, he never, he, it was no whistle. This is not Harry Truman doing whistle stop <laughs> tours in 1948. This is a situation where Garfield went home to Ohio and basically waited to see who was going to be the president of the United States. Tell him about how that election process worked in 1880. I'm, we're interested. Go ahead. That's right. That's right. He was told to sit cross-legged and look presidential. So he was told just stay home. Yeah, you, it, it's 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 bad form, as you say, to sort of campaign for yourself. So he was told to stay home. But people would come to him. So he had this house in Ohio um, and that the journalist ended up naming Lawnfield. And it's now the uh, it's now a historic site. But um, and he people would come to him and he was um, and he spoke several languages. He spoke German and he actually a group of German Americans came to him and he gave the first presidential campaign speech in another language in a language other than English on his front stoop. Um, and all these different groups would come to him. but He wouldn't leave. And um, and it was it was a it was a tight race. Um, but um, to his sort of shock and even at the time, to his sorrow, he he won. And he didn't want to be the president, as you said. He didn't really want the, he had to take it, but he didn't, mm-hmm. he was the, he, he most, they died for these jobs. He did not want to be the president <laughs> under any circumstances. As it turns out, because of it, he ends up dead. But it's the last thing in the world he wants to be is the president of the United States, right? He didn't want to do this. Yeah, that's right. He called it a presidential fever, and he had seen it happen to so many of his friends, people he really admired people he respected and he saw them, you know, shunt aside really their their true deepest values and make all these compromises in the hope of of becoming president. And he didn't want that. He wasn't willing to let that happen to him. And he also understood all the sacrifices he was going to have to make. You know, he had a young family he loved very much. He wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to spend time on his farm in Ohio. He wanted to read. I mean, he was brilliant. He was this incredibly voracious reader. And he knew that he wouldn't have time to do any of those things. You know, this is, as I said, this is the height of the spoils system. So the president was expected to meet with office seekers one on one every day from I think it was like nine in the morning till one in the afternoon. And it drove Garfield insane. And he said he didn't understand why anyone would ever want to be president. And he gets the job. We'll continue and see how uh, our little buddy Charles there uh, throws a major wrench and catches him at a train station. And away we go. Candace Millard, Destiny Republic on James Garfield. Candace Millard, Destiny of the Republic. Great book on James Garfield and his ill-fated presidency. She's a wonderful author. River of the Gods went, just went to paperback. Source of the Nile, that's out too. I've read a lot of her books. This one I ran into here uh, probably about three weeks ago. And I, I, for some reason, I may have read it 15 years ago. And I, I liked it as much the second time as maybe I did the first time. You know, I, one person I forgot to mention here, Candace, is the young kid who became sort of his... Uh, you know, PR guy and ran his whole staff that he hired when he became the president, Garfield, who ended up marrying, I believe, one of Garfield's daughters who was only 20 something years of age. Brown, give me a little rundown on him. He's an interesting character here. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I agree. Joseph Stanley Brown. Yeah, he was very young. He was 23 by the time he was the president's personal secretary. And he was very nervous about taking the job. The personal secretary in the past had been someone, you know, uh, very high up in administrations, much, much older and more experienced. But Garfield trusted him. He liked him and he trusted him and he wanted someone close to him he could really trust. And, um, and you know, Brown ends up really running the presidency after Garfield is shot because there's no protocol for this. You know, there was protocol for what would happen if a president were killed, but not if one were, you know, gravely injured and still living. And um, and so there's just this young man who, even before Garfield was shot, was really the only buffer between Garfield and the wider world. So again, this is 16 years after Lincoln's assassination, but there's still no Secret Service protection at all for the president. So um, it's just he has sort of an aging police officer sleeping in a chair outside of his office. And this kid <laughs> who's trying his best to keep the crazies out of the you know, the president's office. So and like you said, the the amazing thing, and I always say this is absolutely true with nonfiction. If you put it in a novel, no one would believe it. And they would say that's ridiculous. And so, yes, he ends up marrying Garfield's daughter, Molly. Uh, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, if Garfield, when he, so Garfield in July, he wants to go up to Jersey on a train to sort of get some air and everything else. You know, he's had the three months. He's put together a very good cabinet. So he wants to go up and it's very early in his, uh, it's very early in his presidency. So he wants to take a summer break. He goes to the railroad, the Baltimore, Washington railroad station. Did he, would he, since, since Gunnell had seen him a lot and knocked on his door, would he have recognized him? Uh, I know he came from behind and shot him, but would he have recognized him if he saw him, say, five minutes prior? Would he have recognized him before he, uh, Gunnell pulled the trigger? Would he have recognized him? I doubt it. I doubt it. But he had many opportunities to see him. So Guteau, again, is becoming obsessed with the president and and he thinks he's going to be made ambassador to France when he finally blamed the secretary of state finally tells him, listen, that's not happening. Leave us alone. Then he has what he believes is a divine inspiration that God wants him to kill the president. So he starts to stalk him. So he sits on a bench outside of the White House every day. He follows him to church. One night, he even followed the president. Garfield left the White House. He walked down the street to Blaine's house. The two men walked through the streets of Washington alone with Guteau following them the entire way, holding a loaded gun. So finally, he decides he reads about this trip that Garfield's going to take. And he decides that that's his opportunity. So he's waiting in the shadows in the train station when Garfield walks in. And Garfield just walks right by him. He's just another person in the train station. All right. So Garfield would not have recognized him. Um, Garfield have a security? A, uh, anybody help? Anybody walking with him to that train station? Does he walk in a carriage with six other people? Is he, is he a sitting duck? Is there folks around him on that morning? He. He is pretty much a sitting duck. So he does arrive with his secretary of state, Blaine. They ride in the carriage together just discussing things. But he gets out by himself. He says hello to the guy outside the station. He walks in and very quickly, Guteau steps out of the shadows and he shoots him twice, once in the arm and once in his back. 
So he shoots him twice. And right away, uh, there is doctors who show up right away. Does he get instant um, uh, attention? And do they catch Gano right away? Unfortunately, he does get instant attention, but it's not the kind of medical care that any of us would have wanted. So the shot, the shots ring out. He falls to the ground. The entire station erupts and screams and everybody sees Guteau. And so he yeah, he is quickly captured. But again, he's so delusional. He starts shouting at he what he's saying. I demand to see, you know, General um, Sherman. And he has written this letter, you know, um, just demanding that Sherman come get him out of the prison. Um, and so, but he's quickly taken and he's, he's taken off to prison, but Garfield's left there. Um, very seriously wounded, obviously. Um, and with him is Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Todd Lincoln. And, um, Robert Todd Lincoln was obviously at his father's deathbed. He's there when Garfield is shot. And then strangely, 20 years later, when McKinley is shot, um, Robert Todd Lincoln is with him as well. But at this moment in the train station with Garfield, he um, sees what's happening and he sends for this man named um, Dr. Willard Bliss, who had been one of the president, one of the doctors who had been with um, Lincoln on his, at his deathbed. And he sends for him and Bliss comes and several others. There are like nine different doctors there all, you know, and Garfield is lying on the, the most, you know, a bacteria filled floor you can imagine in a train station with an open wound. And they immediately start inserting their unsterilized fingers and instruments, not only unsterilized, they're incredibly, they're coming, you know, there's horse manure everywhere. God knows what is on their hands. They're sticking them in his back, probing for this bullet. They finally put him on a, um, a horsehair and hay mattress and carry him up the stairs to a private room above above the station. Wow. We'll get to that, too, because there was a doctor in Europe who had really th- was septic and everything else, had made a lot of advances, mm-hmm. and these doctors didn't go along with him. They thought he was a, he thought he was a, a nutcase. You're telling me that America mm-hmm. and the government in Washington did not learn anything in the 16 years from Lincoln's assassination in a theater with Wilkes Booth, who just walked up and shot him. Uh, you're telling me that we as America did not take any precautions with presidential assassinations when one had just happened 15 years before, 16 years before. I find that very strange. How come that's the case? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And I know it seems so strange to us today, but it was still a young country and as, as we know, one of the founding ideas behind our country is that this is not a monarchy. We do not have kings. We freely get to choose, get to elect our leaders. And so there shouldn't be any danger to them. They, you know, There were a lot of assassinations and assassination attempts going on in Europe, but Americans felt like, well, that's because their leaders are forced on them. You know, here we get to choose our leaders and we have access to them. And so there shouldn't be any reason someone's going to try to kill the president. And they thought with Lincoln, that was just a byproduct of war, you know, it was the Civil War. And that's why that happened. And they just didn't think there'd be any danger. And Garfield himself said that being assassinated was no more likely than death by lightning. And he wasn't going to worry about it. And so there wasn't, they, they, you know, Americans felt very strongly there shouldn't be any distance or any anyone blocking our access to our leader, our freely elected leaders. 
No barriers. Interesting. All right, tell us about the mm-hmm. doctor in Europe mm-hmm. who had become and had made a lot of advances with infections. And if somehow he showed up at that train station, Garfield would have been alive, uh, you know, three months later. Tell us about him. He's interesting here. Go ahead. Absolutely. So his name is Joseph Lister. We've all heard of Listerine. That's based on Lister's work and antisepsis. So Lister was a British surgeon who discovered antisepsis again, 15 years earlier before Garfield's um, Garfield was shot. And um, and he went around the world, including to the United States, telling doctors that if they didn't sterilize their hands and instruments, they ran the very real risk of killing their patients. And he came to the United States. There was a big symposium, the Philadelphia Exposition. He, and they had a big medical symposium. And he was one of the main speakers. And some of the doctors who would later help to treat Garfield were there, but they didn't trust him. You know, they thought this is new. This is untested, which it wasn't. Um, and they and they also thought it was a waste of time. So they even doctors who decided to try it um, w- would fail horribly for for very obvious reasons, it would seem to us. So they would um, they might sterilize their instruments, but if they drop them during surgery, they would just pick them back up and continue to use them. Or if they needed, you know, an extra hand, they would put the knife in their teeth and then continue to use it. Wow. And they took wow. great pride in what they called the good old surgical stink. So they wouldn't change or wash their surgical um, aprons. They thought that the more blood and pus on them, the more experience it showed. And so, obviously, you're going to have horrible, horrible infections. Wow. So, they thought the more pus, the better off you're going to be instead of less pus, is what you're telling me. Wow. And yes, tell us they a- called it the he- healthy pus. The healthy pus. <laughs> and bliss. Is ignorant like bliss? Does that, is that where that phrase comes from with the doctor? His main, his main that doctor? That actually here? came from, it, it comes from a poem that was earlier. Yeah, but it fits this exactly. And what's, in, what's crazy about it, too, is his first name was Doctor. His parents had named him Doctor. So his name was Doctor, Doctor Willard Bliss. Wow. <laughs> so I didn't realize that. Now, so Garfield liked him, though. So Garfield knew who the doctor was when he's sitting at that train. Is, is Garfield conscious? During this situation, when they're sitting on that floor of the railroad station, can he communicate? Is he conscious in this situation? Yes, he's conscious, but there's not much he can do. I mean, you can imagine if you've just been shot, you have a bullet in your arm, a bullet in your back. You don't have much say. You're trusting the people around you to make good decisions. And he did know Bliss, but not well, not as a doctor. Um, It's just it's Robert Todd Lincoln who trusts him. And Bliss, unfortunately, sees in this national tragedy, really a once in a lifetime opportunity for him, for fame and power. So he quickly starts to pair away all these other doctors who have run to the to the train station. And even today, they then put him in a wagon, put Garfield in a wagon, and they take him to the White House. Because at that time, if you got sick or you were injured, the last place you'd want to go would be a hospital because it was just filthy and it's just a place where people went to die and so they take him to the white house and bliss is there and and garfield has a doctor who's racing to get there but when he gets there bliss is like you're not needed you need to leave and so he's just taking over even though there's really there's no one who gave him that power but there's really no one to say wait stop what's going on because it's so there's chaos and confusion and fear 
And the hospitals, you know, so you did not, in 1880, you did not show up at a hospital if you were sick. That's the last place <laughs> you wanted to go. Wow, that's amazing. And tell them about that's how the bad place. they- yep. Yeah. And tell them how bad the White House was. I mean, this is not the White House that we know and love today. This is a <laughs> decrepit building, about 60 years old, seven or more than that, about 100 years old. And this is a decrepit building in 1880, which Garfield knew about and wanted to make sure he fixed. That was a big goal of his to clean up the White House. But this is an awful building in this time period, especially in the summertime. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Exactly. It's crumbling. It's full of rats. It's yeah, I mean, they there's so much that needs to be done to it. And Garfield knows that and was in the process. He and his wife are in the process of trying to, you know, convince Congress to give them money to to fix it up. I mean, it was just, you know, just an, an embarrassment to our country and a danger to the people who lived in it. And, and again, it's better than the hospitals, but it's not where you'd want to be in his situation. But it's the only place he has to go. There were two bullets in them with Candace Millard, Destiny of the Republic on James Garfield. Wonderful book, Destiny of the Republic on James Garfield, shot and killed in the summer of 18, is 1881 or 1880, Candace? 1881. 1881. Uh, if he got shot today, if this happened today, would he have been 100% go to the doc, you know, surgeon, take the two bullets out and uh, stay in the hospital for a week to make sure the infections are taken care of and go on his merry way? If this happened 100 years later, would he have been, would he have been fine? Yes, I think so. You know, his injuries um, were not as bad as Reagan's were when Reagan was shot. So the second bullet that went in his back, it didn't hit any vital organs. It didn't hit his spinal cord. It ended up going behind his pancreas and just insisting there. Um, without any question what killed him were the doctors who were probing for for this bullet. So it took him months to die, and he died from septicemia um, in the end. And, um, you know, it would, it would break your heart if you would see they have his death mask at his house in Lawnfield in this museum. And he, uh, you know, it's just it's just heartbreaking. He He lost most of his weight. He, he was, um, you know, and, and the doctors, they were giving this uh, gunshot victim, they were giving him rich foods and alcohol um, and every single day probing for, for this um, bullet to try to find out where it was. And there, without question, that's, that's what killed him. Uh, and the medical community, when, would, when did they become uh, uh, smart enough, intelligent enough where they would have treated this much differently. Are we talking 10 years later? Are we talking 50 years later? I mean, we know in 1980 it would have been fine. This is 1880, 1881. 10 years later, when did the breakthrough occur with the medical community where an incident like this involving a president would not have resulted in death? The heartbreaking answer is immediately. They understood immediately. So as, as soon as the autopsy report was released, Americans understood why their president died, and they understood that he didn't have to die. And it was clear to everyone, and antisepsis was immediately adopted throughout the country. So in a way, you know, Garfield's he death- He saved a lot of people's lives. He saved, saved a lot, a of, people's lot of people's lives. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Now, that's, where's his wife during this summertime? Doesn't she have any questions? How about our buddy Brown? Doesn't he have any? <laughs> uh, how about Lincoln? So, the, the, how, who's about, I mean, somebody's got to say, hold on now, Mr. Bliss, this is not working. We got to try something else. There had to be somebody who thought that. How come? Where were they? So, 
like I said, so uh, Bliss is just taking over. There's chaos, there's confusion, there's fear. He's very confident. He's he's known since he had been at Lincoln's deathbed. And people are like, well, maybe I think he knows what he's doing. Also, people thought at first that that Garfield was going to die right away. You know, he had a bullet in his back. They thought he wasn't going to last the night. And then he survives. And what Bliss was doing is he was issuing these telegrams that would be put up on, on big um bulletin boards and things around the, around the cities and you were transmitted across the country updates on his uh, medical condition and so people are thinking well oh my gosh he survived and maybe he's going to live and maybe that's because of bliss and i think as as is true today when you have someone you love who's sick or injured you're scared and you and not many of us are going to question the doctors, right? Because we don't know. We're not medical professionals. We're going to have to trust somebody and hope that we trusted the right person. And that's what happened. Interestingly, Lucretia, who was she she actually had been in New Jersey waiting for him. She came back as quickly as she could and she's with him every day. And he also is completely isolating the, the president blisses. He's in a room in the White House. And nobody is allowed to visit him except for his wife. And so so people don't really know what's going on except for what he's telling them. And Lucretia, Garfield's wife, she had her own doctor. And her doctor was a woman, which was very rare, as you can imagine, at the time to have a female doctor. In fact, it was so rare that they called her Mrs. Dr. Edson in the, in the newspapers. Like, she's a doctor, but she's a woman. It's a very strange but she tried to do what she could, but you can imagine how sort of scornful and dismissive Bliss was of this female doctor. And so she did stay and she tried to help how she, however she could, but the damage was being done every single day. All right, and Bliss eventually, after this goes on for how long? A couple of months from July? Yeah, it go, yeah, yeah, almost three months. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, so uh, Bliss has got to be getting the idea. Oh, I don't know, the guy's not getting any better. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. I don't want to be the doctor that's on call when he dies. I better try something else. So there has to be a time, right, Candace, where he starts to throw out some bait to get some other guys to examine him to see if I'm, you know, we can save the guy's life because he's deteriorating in front of his very eyes. He's got to panic about that, you know, the quote-unquote America's doctor. Does he do that? Does he wonder? You're exactly that? right. He is so afraid that Garfield's going to die. And it's not about Garfield, it's about him. And so we have, he he wrote, he we have handwritten on, on White House stationery, he wrote, I cannot underline not afford to let him die. You know, I it can't this can't happen to me because, like you said, his reputation is going to be destroyed. So he is desperate, but what it doesn't occur to him to ask for help or to listen. I mean there were people who were who were writing in. In fact, there was, I'm proud to say, a doctor from Kansas who writes to Lucretia saying, don't let him continue to probe for this wound. Leave it alone. Um, but he, he won't listen to that. The only thing he does is he reaches out to Alexander Graham Bell or Alexander Graham Bell reaches out to him and he agrees to let him come with his induction balance 
to see if he can find where the bullet is in Garfield's body. So they co- so they are convinced that he'd get better if they got the two bullets out. That seems like what they, uh, they searched right away for the bullets. Graham Bell, let's get these two bullets out of there. For whatever the reason, they don't think that, you know what, the bullet might be in there forever. It's not a big deal. A lot of times mm-hmm. the bullet is not, is not going to affect his life. They were mm-hmm. convinced, Bliss was and others, that if we got the two bullets out, he'd, have a, he'd, be, he'd recover. That's what they were concerned with, correct? Yes, he, they thought they needed to know where it was. And as we know, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt ends up being shot and, and lives for the rest of his life with a bullet in his chest. The, the, um, this is after the Civil War. There were a lot of people walking around with bullets inside of them doing just fine. Even the man who captured, who first captured Guiteau after he shot Garfield, he had a bullet in his brain <laughs> from the Civil War and was fine. And so, yeah, sometimes a bullet, obviously, it can be a real danger. You need to get it out. Sometimes you need to leave it alone. And this was the case. But unfortunately, in this case, you'd think it would help you to be president of the United States. You would get the best medical care. But the fact that he was president and everybody was watching and there was so much on the line they they weren't willing to do um, what they thought was sort of untested medicine y- using antisepsis. They wanted and to they play conservatively. Like, they wanted to play exa- conservative. They, what they thought was conservative. Yeah, right. and as it turns out, it cost them. What happened to our little buddy Gano here, the idiot who shot him? Well, uh, he goes to jail. <laughs> Give me a little rundown on him. What's up with him? So he is taken to prison and he is thrilled. This is the happiest he's been because he's getting so much attention, right? He does every interview he can. He dusts off the autobiography that he's been writing, even puts an ad um, in the paper um, asking for, you know, any young woman of means who would be interested in marrying him. You know, he's thrilled with all the attention he's getting, but the country is determined to see him hang. And so he has one of the very first insanity defenses. Um, he can't, he really can't find um, a lawyer to represent it. It has to be his brother-in-law, um, who is a tax attorney, who's trying his best. But during the trial, they, he's Guto is constantly shouting things out and berating his brother-in-law openly. And and he says, though, Guto does say at one point during the trial, he says, I shot the president, but his doctors killed him. And he was right. Yeah, he was. But, he was um, right. Yep. But obviously it was caused by, you know, his actions. And so he is found guilty and he is sentenced to death. And um, and again, it just gets stranger and stranger. So he knows that he's going to be hanged. And he asks, he makes a very unusual request. He has written a poem called Going to the Lordy. And he asks if he can, first he asks if he can, um, present this poem, you know, on the gallows in his underwear for some reason. And they say, you, you know, you know, you have to wear clothes, but you can recite your poem. And so the, the what he does, he gets to decide the moment of his own death. So he has this understanding with the hangman and he says, I'll, I'll recite my poem. And when I'm finished, I'll drop the piece of paper that the poem's um, and, that, that and, that's when, and that's when they hung him. Oh my God! Really? Yep. Wow! Yeah. And he and yeah. he was hung after Garfield died. Correct? He was hung after Garfield died. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Garfield. They, they at the end of it. Before we take our last break and do a little Chester Arthur. At the end of it, they send Garfield up to Jersey. They thought the fresh air would do him good. Tell me about that. Go ahead. 
Right. It's really heartbreaking and it shows how much he meant to this country. So he knows that he's going to die and he's always loved the sea, even though he was born and raised in Ohio. He's always loved the sea. And there's someone in New Jersey who has a home there and says on the on the shore and he said and he um, donates it. Um, and so to get Garfield, though, from Washington to New Jersey, they have to especially outfit a train car. So they take everything out of the inside of this train car and they try to cool it for him. By the way, when he was in the White House, the um, naval engineers developed the very first um, air conditioning unit to try to cool him. And so they're trying to cool him. They're trying to buffer it. So, you know, he's not caused any additional pain if they can help it. And they and they take him along these railroad tracks and the tracks all throughout the country from Washington to New Jersey are lined with people watching it go by. And then they get to this house and the house is on a hill and the train can't get up the hill to this um, to the house. And so these people who live there, they come and they they feverishly put these tracks up and they they pick up this train car and they carry it to the door of the house. Wow. For for their president. All right. With Candace Millard. Great to have her with us here. All right, Candace Chester Arthur was um, the vice president for uh, for um, Garfield. And, you know, they weren't like a running mate. He just they made him the vice president. He does. He's not even in Washington at the time. And he becomes the president. Everybody thought he'd be a lousy president. And for four years, he did a decent job. Give him a little rundown on that. Go ahead. So Chester Arthur was um, the again, very, very different from Garfield. He liked dinner parties and fine wine. He even he changed his birthday. He moved it back a year to appear more youthful. And the only job, the only position he had really held was as a collector of the New York Customs House before he was um, vice president of the United States. And that was given to him by Ulysses S. Grant through this guy, Roscoe Conkling, who was a senior senator from New York and hated Garfield because he and not, not Grant had been given the nomination. And so he, w- he made himself Garfield's enemy and, and Toaster Arthur went completely along with that. He criticized Garfield publicly every chance he got. And, um, and so when Garfield was shot, people were just horrified at the thought of Chester Arthur becoming president. They're like, good God, you know, anything but Chester Arthur. And they think that he's eagerly waiting in the wings to take over. Um, but the but the truth is the opposite. He was horrified. He was sickened by the shooting. He was so concerned and really praying that Garfield would live. And he that's why he wasn't in Washington. He stayed in New York because he didn't want it to look like he was being eager and that he wanted Garfield to die. And amazingly, he he cut himself off from Conkling. Conkling thought this is our opportunity to grab power. And he completely cut himself off from Conkling, the man who had made him. And um, and he when Garfield died, he tried to become the president, the type of president Garfield would have been had he lived. And what to me was fascinating when I was doing research in the Library of Congress, I was working through, you know, all these papers that really no one had paid attention to since 1881. And I came across these letters. There was a series of letters from this woman named Julia Sand. And she was an invalid shut in, but she started writing to to Chester Arthur after Garfield was shot. And her letters were so 
unbelievably beautiful and moving. And she believed in Chester Arthur when nobody else did, when he didn't even believe in himself. And she said to him, she said, do what is more difficult. Don't resign, reform. And she believed in him. And that is what he tried to do. And he kept her letters all these years. I mean, they're, they're in the Library of Congress right now. And after he became president, he went to her house on a Sunday in person in the presidential carriage to thank her. Wow. How about that? Garfield, yeah. I know he was only the president for a couple of months. It's hard to analyze it. I, as I said at the top, I think he would have been one of the great presidents we've had. You did years of research. Do you agree or disagree? I completely agree. You know, he was so progressive in so many ways. Like I said, he was instrumental in bringing about black suffrage. And he had, um, Frederick Douglass was on the Eastern Portico with him when he gave his inaugural address. So that was really important. So I think we would have made a lot more progress in civil rights issues much more quickly. He deeply cared about education. It had been his own salvation. I think that that would have been excellent for the for the country as well. And as I said, he didn't owe anyone anything. And so he could have made real progress. You know, he had a freedom and a power in that freedom that really, I, I can't think of another president who had that. Yeah, he was independent, had a chance. Great job. I really mm -hmm. enjoyed that there, Candace. You did a super job giving a little library tour to, uh, to uh, <laughs> sports fans on a July 5th day. Sell a million of them with this new book. You are the paperback edition of River of the Gods. You do a wonderful job. We'll talk to you again. Appreciate you coming on here today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Want more Chris Russo? Listen to Mad Dog Unleashed weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Mad Dog's Daily Bite is part of the Sirius XM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.